Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This is a story that is both terrible, distressing, and infuriating. Robert Major faces two counts of second-degree murder. In the September 16 deaths of Mikhail Bush, she was 24, and her 16-month-old son, Noel, Noah McConnell, in Hinton, Alberta. Now, Major, who's listed on the National Sex Offender Registry database, um, lived in the same building as his victims. The bodies were found in Major's apartment. He, by the way, was the subject of an Edmonton police warning in 2017 after he was allowed to live in the community. And here's how the police warning read. The Edmonton Police Service has reasonable grounds to believe he, Major, will commit another sexual offense against a female, including children, while in the community, end of quote. Now, it's not known whether Major or when he moved to Hinton. It's not known when that happened. And the National Sex Offender Registry, by the way, the database is not available to just any member of the community. Uh, Cody McConnell, Mikhail Bush's fiancé and father of Noah, has said the system failed Mikhail and Noah by not letting us know we moved in next door to a convicted sexual offender. Cody McCollum joins us on The Roy Green Show with um, family friend Verna Sand and Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor who was instrumental in the establishing of the National Sex Offender Registry database. Cody, deepest condolences to you uh, and your family on your, on your terrible loss. Thank you. And, and Verna, to you as well. I know the, the family is very important to you as a, a longtime family friend. Thank you. Cody, you want answers. You want answers from the justice system. You want answers from the police. Please, please tell us what it is that's on your mind, what you've been thinking about, and the answers, the questions that you want answered. Well, I want... Uh... Well, I think basically what we want as a family is to ensure that this kind of tragedy can never happen again. Um, we need to find out why it was able to happen in the first place, and we want to make changes. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and I, can, I think I can appreciate, I'm not sure, but I've, I've talked to many crime victims, unfortunately, in this country, as has Scott, and we've done it together on this program. They become victims because the system let them down. How long, Cody, how long were, were you residents in the building? Uh, uh, we were only there for about 10 days, just shy of two weeks. And had you had any encounters with Robert Major? No. Nothing at all? Never. No, but there had been other people in the building that didn't get a hold of me till after the fact that said they had encounters. And... Um, I was also told that a young lady had moved out because of this man, and that had all been reported to the apartment company, but not yeah. to me. Yeah. You want to know how it is that guy got to live in the same building as you did without you and your fiance knowing who he was and the threat he represented? Well, absolutely. And the fact that we moved, like, a, we were only a block away from a school, right? And multiple playgrounds. And it was an elementary school, too. Yeah. Have police talked to you at all about Major's presence in your building? No. 
no, they didn't even know he was there. Because when they went missing, I got home at like 5 o'clock or whatever, and I had to, I called the cops by about 5.45 because supper was cooking, and it was just suspicious that they weren't home. So I just called the cops right away. And they had no idea who the guy was. He was the first apartment that we went to. Like, I looked that guy in the eyes, and I talked to him, but he was hiding behind his mask. So you actually you talked to this guy? You talked to me? Oh, yeah, three times. This is after, like, after the, the fact. After the fact. It, was, it would have been only, like, 40 minutes, an hour after he killed them. Oh, my God. Scott, it makes your uh, makes your blood run cold. You and I have talked to far too many victims of crime. You more than I, um, and and you you know that Cody and uh, and Verna and their families want to do what victims of crime in this country do. They want to make sure that nobody else suffers as they have suffered. One of the questions that you, as a former Crown prosecutor who was very instrumental in the creation of this sex offender database, one of the questions you want answered. Well, I think the. The, uh, the one that you start with, and it's been that way with virtually every case we've ever dealt with, is what exactly happened here and what didn't happen and why? Because this guy and, you know, his background was that he had been convicted of a sexual abduction and assault of a child, okay, and he was, we know from the details we've been able to see that's been reported and a little digging around, we know that he got a, a federal sentence of almost four years. Uh, let's just say he was uh, not one of the star candidates because he was kept at least until the two-thirds of his sentence, which is relatively rare. And then he's released on a whole bunch of conditions. And after that, the, as you mentioned, the Alberta police release a public notice and they have him put on the specialized um, supervision order that, again, came out of work that we did on previous cases where it's like he's on, uh, you know, a parole order but with, with specific conditions that include things like not being around kids. And we don't know. Those orders can go on for two years, and we don't know why it was that that order was not renewed or the, the cops didn't go back to try to get it because if, if they'd have been able to do that, and, and as I say, I don't know whether the police decided they couldn't go back, the Crown didn't approve it, or they took it to court and the judge turned it down, but it was after that that this guy then left Edmonton, okay, where he was, you know, under supervision and with restrictions, and instead he's free to go and he, uh, and he moves uh, to, uh, uh, to Hinton. Yeah. And that's for me, is question number one, is why the hell was this guy not followed up with given the conclusion that he was high risk as you noted in what was in the public statement yeah and and by the way did he comply with the law under the sex offender registration act and registered a new address and if he didn't why wasn't a arrest warrant issued for him yeah so scott one of the questions i'm sure that uh, cody and vernon the family one answered uh, is why wasn't the owner of the building of an apartment building why weren't they aware of the fact that Major was there and posed the threat? Is that, again, because they don't have access to the sex offender database, or is it because the, he was released and eventually, as the RCMP said in late September, he wasn't subject to any recognizance conditions any longer? Uh, no, it's because of the uh, Sex Offender Registration Act. 
It doesn't allow, uh, it very, very severely restricts access to information of people who are registered under it. And the public, um, including tenants, uh, prospective tenants or landlords, you know, of the buildings that uh, people are going to be in close contact with each other, they're not allowed to get that information. And that, I think, is one of the changes that needs to happen here, Mm -hmm. is to allow, as I say, tenants, prospective tenants and landlords, not to get it themselves, but to go to the police and say, okay, look, we want to make sure that, you know, our tenants are not going to be exposed to this, or I've got to make a decision about where I want to live, and I don't want to live in a building with a uh, child sex offender, so I want you to find it. And there's an internal process that we also need to look into because the, the national system is run by the RCMP, but basically it's administered by the provinces. And I can tell you just from my initial work on it, it seems like a pretty bureaucratic process. Okay. But I think it should be that those groups that I just mentioned are allowed to ask the police to reach out to the registry. And they don't have to know the name of the individual, but just is there somebody who is on the, and you could redefine the list, you know, so that it's violent sexual offenses or child sexual offenses, but that there's somebody at that stated address which they are required by law to give to the registry so that, you know, people like uh, Cody could make a decision, well, I'm not going to live there. Cody, too often the victims are... um are lost in the story, I find, in the in the developments. And I'm very hesitant to ask this question, but I think I, I must. Tell us a little bit about your fiancé and, and, and your son. Well, Mikhail was a wonderful person with a big heart, and she cared for everybody. And uh, she would give her shirt off her back to help anybody, and I kind of think that's what got her in this predicament. Um, I think she must have been trying to help him with something, or that's how he lured her over there. It was it was her kind heart? Um, yeah. She, and and my my son, you know, we were it was a short and sweet life that he lived. Right, we were we were inseparable. We spent every moment together. That's well. That's why they followed me around on the road for my work. Right. She didn't want to be away from me, and I didn't want to be away from them. Yeah, it's so, so heartbreaking. Verna, you're a family friend. You've known Cody for for many years. What, what are you thinking right now? That's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> I'm thinking, how is it possible that we are living this? <clears throat> Even from the moment when we were on our way to Hinton, trying to imagine what had possibly happen to Mikhail and Noah. I'm going to be very honest. I could not in my naive mind have ever come up with this scenario. I didn't believe that this could happen in our lives. And it was just shocking. And I think we still live in a little bit of shock and a lot of trauma. Yeah. And when, when Cody, when you said that you confronted this guy uh, three times in the hour after Mikhail and, and Noah had gone missing. That just makes it, makes my blood run cold. Uh, and have they told you anything at all about what's going to happen next or how the system will will react and act? Have, have you been told anything at all, Cody? Not really. Um, they haven't really said anything to me. Um, it's all kind of just up in the air. Nobody's really talking to us or anything. So I've been in 
uh, a little bit of contact with the Crown Prosecutor, but they can't tell us anything because of the case, right? They don't want to put the case in jeopardy. Right, of course. So let's ask the Crown Prosecutor, the former Crown Prosecutor, Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor. Scott, what's going to happen now? What happen, What happens in the system? How, how will Cody and how will uh, Mikhail and Noah uh, be represented? Um, they will have a, um, a role that they can actually play uh, in the act, in the uh, proceedings that which will be the criminal prosecution that's going to have to play itself out. Um, the uh, one of the uh, challenges in these kinds of systemic reforms is that essentially, if you're trying to look at doing policy reforms, it really it, things are generally put on hold until the actual case itself is completed. Um, I don't know about the nature of the evidence that they have against this guy. Uh, and whether it'll be expedited by him pleading guilty or not, I, I just simply don't know that. I can tell you, without getting into the details, I've already reached out to some people uh, to identify what some of these systemic issues are, because the kind of policy analysis can actually take place uh, without necessarily being implemented, because you can't influence the outcome of, of the criminal proceedings, of course. Uh, but you can do some of that groundwork and also take a look, as I've been doing, about exactly what kinds of changes would fix this mm-hmm. so that uh, people, law-abiding citizens, would have the right to know the knowledge that's in a publicly administered database yeah, yeah. about risk that they potentially face. It is, it, is, it is impossible to accept, just using the most fundamental logic, that someone with major's record... judged to be a threat to women and children going forward, warned by the Edmonton Police Service that he posed a threat. It's it's impossible to to say that any thinking human being would say, well, okay, then we'll just let him go. We won't won't really tell anybody if he's living in an apartment building who he's living next to. It's it's impossible to, 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 to put that together. Cody, do you have a question for Scott? Um, I think just basically on the family's part is our question is to Scott, um, please help us and guide us in knowing what we have to do, what doors we have to knock on, who we have to talk to, um, to make these changes so that uh, we save lives. We need to be proactive rather than reactive. Right now we are suffering because we're reactive, but we need people to be safe. You're 100% correct, and uh, you can count on my full support and help. Thank you. You have somebody who's incredibly knowledgeable and has been uh, leading reform of our justice system for more than 30 years. I, uh, I, I, I know there are, th- there are times you just, you're lost for words. And this case, this, this, what happened and how your family is going to go forward, um, just leaves me lost for words. Let me just, let me just uh, say this, Scott. Let me just say this. All right. I just hope, and I just hope that the system will provide you with something that you can take away with and and build on and feel like you weren't totally abandoned. Scott, we have about a minute. Go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to point out some, um, I think, uh, reasons for some degree of optimism in terms of change. Uh, you may uh, recall, your listeners may recall, recently information about new laws being adopted in Saskatchewan and Alberta. It's co- known as Claire's Law, yes. and it's where the 
government is able to give through the police information about uh, former uh, uh, domestic violence offenders to women because they form a, they have a special risk. That's the same in my view as uh, people who might be living in an apartment building with someone like that. And the second thing is I've done in poking around through the legislation on the sex offender registry, I found out that in 2011 it was amended. And guess what? One of the amendments was to the purpose of the registry, which originally was to help police in crime investigation. You know what? Now it's crime investigation and crime prevention. Hello. Yeah, that means that people like families like this should yep. be entitled to know, you know, who yeah. it is that is potentially living in the building. Right. You can still protect the privacy, but you get to know that somebody's in the building that's a potential risk, right. and that's a pri- crime prevention tool. Yes, it is. Stand by for an increase in food prices at the grocery store. I haven't seen enough. There's more to come. The Canadian Dairy Commission is calling for an 8.4% increase. In Farmgate, milk prices, which in turn would raise the cost of dairy products on store shelves, milk, cream, butter, cheese, all going to go up in price. And so will virtually everything else on the grocery shelves, says our guest. Professor Sylvain Charlebois, Director of Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and Professor at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, thank you very much for taking the time. I, it's a terrible line, but I, had to, I have to use it. What's up? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, pretty much everything, except for produce. I mean, if you're if you're into vegetables and fruits, uh, there are some pretty good deals. Uh, in fact, produce is cheaper by about 3.5% compared to last year. We have a strong dollar. Harvest was strong here in Canada and most parts of the country anyways. So uh, at least you get a break uh, with veggies and, and fruits. But uh, for everything else, it's up. Absolutely, especially uh, meat products. A- any animal proteins, really, with eggs, uh, it's more expensive. Center of the store is being hit by inflation. Even the freezer aisle, which tends to be a friendly place for people on a tight budget, um, it's getting complicated out there. And, and, and essentially because of these macro factors, and, and it's not just in Canada, it's everywhere in the Western world. Uh, let's talk about the dairy, uh, the dairy products reality. What what are we going to be looking at? Because they're saying what is it? Eight point four percent is what the commission is calling for. But I'm, if I remember correctly, in our off air conversation, you thought it was going to go higher than that. Yeah. So that that news came out last week. Uh, I, I got really concerned. In fact, I got the call. I think it was an hour after uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission posted its, its recommendation. They have until November 1st to recommend to provinces how much farmers should be getting for their work. It's part of supply management, so you want to make sure that farmers uh, make a decent living uh, doing their jobs. But uh, 8.4% is, is a record. It's almost double the previous record. And for butter, uh, it's 12.4%. So... Uh, yeah. I'm I'm very concerned now. Of course, I'm not I'm not suggesting that farmers don't deserve that money. I've I've always concern concern I've always questioned how the Cane Dairy Commission comes up with these numbers. Uh, when you look at reports posted on their website, it's it's not clear. There's no raw data. 
they claim it's all verified by accountants. I've never gotten uh, a response from the CDC um, about my question asking who's behind the numbers, who are actually supporting these numbers, who are verifying these these numbers. So I still haven't received a, a response. So it's really ambiguous, and, and I want to remind your listeners that the Canadian Dairy Commission is a crown corporation owned by Canadians. About 80 people are there working at the CDC for Canadians, not for dairy farmers, for Canadians. Yeah, that's good to remember that, uh, that they work for us. And, and then so when you ask, because you, you're you the most informed person in this country on this, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and I'm sure as far as most people in the country are concerned. So when you ask, you're asking for objective reasons, uh, but you're also asking for the rest of Canadians. 8.4% is big. Absolutely. it is. The last record was 4.5%, and I just learned today there's a group of dairy farmers in Quebec that are asking for, get this, Roy, an increase of 18.7%, not 8.4%, because they think that the recommendation is not high enough. And And that points to... The problem uh, with supply management, you have several inefficient uh, farmers, farms out there, and the CDC will always look at averages. you got lots of dairy farmers working very hard. They run a really good operation, but they, go, they, go, they don't get rewarded by the system because it's all about averages. So Canadians will pay for good work, efficient work, but it will also pay for mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, law of averages, eh? Um, exactly. So, and, and I'm with you. I, I believe farmers, I don't I don't think you can pay farmers enough for what they do because they feed us and they take care of us. They work harder than, Absolutely. probably work harder than any other sector uh, physically and, and otherwise work harder than any other sector, take more risks, more chances, uh, endanger their health more than most other sectors in our in our society. So give them, God bless them. Uh, so what about the other side of this? We, you know, we're talking about energy. We'll build in the next half hour. Europe's facing an energy crisis. China's got electricity, blackouts. Um, Canada's not, Canada's not going to escape this. So if energy and energy prices continue to go up, fuel continues to go up in cost, that is going to also drive up food price. You can't avoid that, can you? No, I don't think so. In fact, uh, as far as food inflation goes, I, I think we're either in the second or third inning of a nine-inning baseball game. Whoa. Uh, it, it, it's going to get even more complicated due to, I would say, three factors, higher input costs, labor, which has been an issue for quite some time in agri-food, like beyond COVID. COVID just made things much worse. Uh, so you're seeing companies paying higher wages, which is great for employers. Uh, it's it's really wonderful to see salaries go up for for uh, for for the first time in many years. The problem in 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 a high volume, low margin environment, you have to adjust prices. And that's what's going on both in service and retail, and finally, transportation, both on water and land. Mm-hmm. Moving moving things around is costing more, and it's impacting food prices as well. And yeah. that's and those issues will linger into the new years for sure. 
And, you know, if, you're, if your salary goes up, if your buying power goes up, well, if your salary goes up, it's only important if your buying power goes up. If your salary goes up but your purchasing power goes down simultaneously, you're not getting ahead. Exactly. So, so going back to the dairy farmers, and again, I actually do think they deserve an 8.4% raise, but who out there is getting an 8.4% raise? <laughs> That's the problem. Exactly. And so if you're affecting... You know, food affordability in Canada, you have to really question how we're going to make sure that our food basket remains affordable. And so I, I actually do think that Canadians, and frankly, Roy, I actually do think that Canadians are becoming smarter shoppers. Uh, they are showing up at the grocery store knowing exactly how much they should be paying for, for items on their grocery list. They're, very, they're much more strategic. They actually will go to different places. Yeah. They'll actually buy those uh, Enjoy Tonight deals more often. It's really great to see, but uh, it, it, you really have to up your game as a consumer uh, to deal with some of the things that, that are about to happen over the next six months. Yeah, as our parents always said, learn the value of a dollar. Exactly. Learn the value <laughs> of a dollar. <laughs> Not very yeah, much these I, days. <laughs> and, and frankly, when I grew up in the 70s, my mother always bought things, everything on special. I think we're going back to the 70s for the next little while. I, I think so, too. I've been to the grocery store, and I've seen people actually go for, for one item, but then they'll look at different manufacturers or different different um, choices they have of that one item. So this one's like a buck seventy four. That one's a buck seventy. The third one's a dollar fifty nine. Well, I'm taking the dollar fifty nine one, and I'm out of here. People are doing that, as you said, smart shoppers. Yeah, yeah. And and do look for quantities as well. There is such a thing as shrinkflation. Manufacturers will act reduce quantities, but not the price. Oh. You'll, you'll, you'll see an illusion, basically. You, you think you're buying the same package, but you know, bite sizes have actually gotten smaller for crackers, for, for cookies. Yeah. Uh, pasta packages are smaller now, so just be careful for that, too. Now check the weight, right? I mean, I bought, I've recently bought something, and I thought, so this box is like eight inches long, and the, the amount of food inside, it's three and a half inches. So I, go, I bought five and, a half ound, five and a half inches of air. Or ever, I don't do well math. Four and a half, whatever it is. <laughs> Four and a half inches, five. Oh, exactly. I can't do math. And frankly, look for flyers and use coupons. It's, yeah. You'll be surprised how much money you'll save. Okay, I'm going to start that. Yesterday, we spoke with uh, Scarlett Martin, Toronto paramedic, who has not been vaccinated for COVID. Now, Ms. Martin told us she's been vaccinated for a lot of things. Being a paramedic, she just doesn't feel confident in this particular vaccine. She stands to lose her job tomorrow because of the vaccine mandate, even though Premier Ford of Ontario has said that the mandate uh, will not extend to healthcare workers. The city of Toronto has decided on its own that it will not honor that particular statement or that position by the provincial government, that it will still continue with its mandate. And so Ms. Martin, who's been a, a paramedic for 20 years, stands to lose her job tomorrow. So what about these COVID vaccine mandates for healthcare workers? Um, I'm just curious what our guests' opinion is of of, of uh, mandates. We're also going to speak about booster shots, why they're necessary, and the protective levels of vaccine and uh, the booster. Also, a question for my guest about how to answer the repeat claim that vaccinated people are just as exposed to uh, COVID and in just as much danger as the unvaccinated if they're hospitalized. 
is their data to address that particular point. And uh, PHAC, Public Health Agency of Canada, has stated children under 12 are leading the new COVID infections across this country. Lots going on, including Merck and Pfizer, the two pharmaceutical giants introducing antiviral pills. They're saying, at least uh, Pfizer is saying, theirs could reduce hospitalization from COVID by 89%. Lots to digest, lots to talk about. Dr. Joseph Blondo joins us, clinical microbiologist and head of clinical microbiology at Saskatoon's Royal University and Hospital and the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Blondo, good to have you back. Oh, it's my pleasure, Roy. Thanks for asking me. It's quite a shopping list we have for you. (laughs) Yeah, it is. What is your your sense about the correctness or incorrectness of, of vaccine mandates for healthcare workers, i.e., if you're not vaccinated by a certain date, you'll be um, suspended without pay. And if you're still not vaccinated, vaccinated by a second date, you're going to be terminated with cause. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's a very difficult ethical question. And, and the reason being is because when you're practicing healthcare, I think there's an expectation that when people come into our healthcare facilities, there are to them. And um, and I think a lot of institutions are struggling to to deal with you know the possibility that being or for other infectious diseases like influenza uh, is going to be important to protect patients. Um, so you have two provincial governments uh, that have so far two provincial governments that have dropped the idea for healthcare uh, workers to be to be vaccinated. Let's not drop the idea to be vaccinated, but they've dropped the mandate. Do you see that uh, going on across the country, or is that too political to get into? I mean, I don't want to turn you into a politician. Fred, uh, in our own institution, if you're not vaccinated, there's going to be a well, there is a requirement for you to be tested on a regular basis, so that if you do contract the virus, it's picked up early enough so that you could be put in appropriate quarantine. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the, The paramedic I spoke with yesterday, Scarlett Martin, said she'd be happy to be tested every day. Uh, yeah, uh, but once again, you know, the tests are not perfect, and it's possible that somebody could be tested with a test with a low sensitivity that would not pick up the presence of the virus, and that person could still be infectious. Okay. Dr. Bondo, when it comes to vaccines, and this, this is constantly repeated, and I'll be receiving, no doubt, 100 or 200 emails over the next couple of hours about this as soon as I talk to you about it. The, the efficacy of vaccines, let's start with that, and fundamentally, uh, and we'll go to point B in whether or not uh, people who are vaccinated actually do better if they're hospitalized from COVID. But let's talk about the efficacy of vaccines so, right, and the need for booster shots. The United States, which is absolutely impressive. Yeah. They collect the data on 181 million Americans that have been double vaccinated. And from 50 U.S. states... There was a report of some 19,500 patients who were double vaccinated that required hospitalization. So 14,500 of those people survived, and some 4,400 died. But of those 4,400, 800 died for reasons other than COVID. You know, for example, they were in a car accident and died as a result of their injuries. So out of that 181 million people, only about 3,600 people who were double vaccinated contracted the virus, was sick enough, and hospitalized and died. And of those, more than 85% 
were great, older than 65 years of age and had comorbidities. So what do you summarize from that? The, the vaccines are... Well, it's hard to argue with numbers, isn't it? Oh, it really is. And I mean, it's an ongoing experiment where this data is being collected on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And it's given us information in real time, which we should be using to inform opinion. So 181 million vaccinations, double vaccinations in the United States. Of those, Correct. some 19,000 plus uh, ended up in the hospital with COVID. And of those 19,000 plus, that's 19,000 out of 181 million. 81 million. 40, was it 4,400 that... 4,400 died. Died, okay. But 800 of those died for reasons other than COVID, even though they tested positive COVID. So out of 181 million double vaccinated Americans, 3,600 died in hospital from COVID. Correct. That didn't have comorbidities or yeah, comorbidities. Nope. They did. Some, uh, they were. Uh, they were more elderly, yeah. and they had comorbidities. Oh. What about the? So, so Roy, yeah. I'll tell you what's important out of this data set. Sure. It tells me that if you're an elderly individual, and you have underlying medical conditions, even being double vaccinated means that you still have some level of risk, and you should exercise other me- measures to keep you safe, like uh, staying away from people, wearing a mask, uh, hand washing, etc. Um, Dr. Blondo, when the booster is available, will you take it? Absolutely. 100%. I'm eligible on November the 27th. I'll be the first in line. Um, okay. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to, there's no way that we, we don't need to talk anymore about this. The numbers tell the story. <laughs> what they about, are impressive. The numbers are impressive. Yeah, it's it's amazing to 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 just just put those numbers together. And I know I'll be getting emails with YouTube videos, but anyway, um, what about this? These these antiviral pills from Merck and Pfizer, and they're saying that Pfizer's saying their antiviral pill could reduce the uh, the hospitalization of COVID uh, patients, if you will, or those infected with COVID by eighty nine percent. What what are your thoughts on antiviral pills? currently available for everybody to review, is actually looking at individuals who are infected but have not advanced too far in terms of their clinical spectrum. So these are people that test positive, are at higher risk, and these uh, these worlds are preventing the disease from progressing. So I, I think they're excellent. It's another, um, you know, treatment in the armamentarium for covid but I don't think they're a replacement for vaccination. Okay. When, when Public Health Canada, Dr. Blondo, says that children under 12 years of age are leading the new COVID infections across Canada, they're also saying COVID cases are declining in this country, but not as quickly as they wished for. Children under 12 leading new COVID infections across the country. What does that speak to? Well, you know, we know from Health Canada's data uh, that you can find and look up on the Government of Canada website that uh, the vast majority, not the vast majority, but a substantial number of infections are occurring in younger individuals. And for, to my way of thinking, and based on the peer review, children are the reservoir for a lot of this virus currently in the country. Now, children tend not to get as severely ill and hospitalized and re- require intensive care treatment. It's not, a, it's not 100%, so some do. And I would say that that's a good enough for children to be vaccinated. Yeah. As well, 
children could become an important reservoir for transmission to other vulnerable people that happen to be within your family or social bubble um, or, or being around anybody else that's at risk. So I do see this as an important component to getting our herd immunity higher than what it is. Yeah. Now, this COVID is not a joke. I just read a story um, a few days ago about in British Columbia, nine lung transplants because of COVID infections, and it doesn't get any more serious than lung transplants. This past week, we, we saw our Prime Minister, as well as hundreds of federal government officials. In fact, I think Canada had the largest delegation. They all got on planes and they flew to, to Glasgow, Scotland to lecture the rest of us about how we should change our behavior. Maybe I could, you know, forgive the blatant hypocrisy if the, if the Prime Minister was over there and he was telling the world about how Saskatchewan provides the most sustainable energy available on the globe. He should be telling them that if everyone else in the world produced their energy in the same way that we did here in Saskatchewan, global emissions, global emissions and oil production would drop by 25% overnight. So a very clear message from you to the Prime Minister. Uh, just for the uh, sake of our listeners across the country, could you just expand on the message that you delivered at the convention last night? I just played the 40, first 40 seconds. You had a lot more to say about that. Right. With respect to the emissions cap that the, the Prime Minister announced in Glasgow on the, on the oil sector specifically, uh, this is a cap that's going to achieve two things. Uh, one, higher prices for, for energy for, for all Canadians at the fuel pumps so to heat their homes. And two, it's going to actually increase uh, global greenhouse gas emissions uh, by uh, by reducing the amount of energy that's being produced in Canada. That energy will then be replaced uh, with you know, places uh, that are also producing energy and increasing their energy uh, production, like Russia, like Venezuela, like uh, Saudi. Uh, I think the, the energy minister in Saudi had recently said that they will drill every last mile of oil out of uh, out of their nation and and deliver it to the world. And so that's where we're going to be purchasing our our oil from. It'll be much higher a much higher uh, environmental footprint, and it's going to cost us more as well. And so the 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 policy, although I'm sure it's coming you know directly from the heart out, uh, isn't going to achieve what it, what it what the prime minister feels that it will. Do you feel that this uh, federal government, and particularly as they come to the end of their participation at COP26, that they're working at cross-purposes to the benefit of, of Canada and the energy sector, certainly, in this country? What are your sense? What are your thoughts on that? No, they're, they're not representing the Can any Canadians that are working in the energy sector, whether they be in a, a refinery in Quebec, Ontario, or New Brunswick, or or uh, whether they be in the in the energy fields themselves in Newfoundland, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, or many other areas, uh, our our federal government is not representing uh, one of the most sustainable energy producing sectors in the world. I I said in my statement that if the rest of the world uh, produced energy like we do here in Saskatchewan, using enhanced oil recovery, uh, using the the SAG-D technology that is reducing our methane emissions. Global emissions uh, from energy from oil production would go down 25% overnight, and that's true. That's a fact, and uh, we are going to continue to use uh, energy in Canada and in other places of the world. And what I would put forward is you should use the most sustainably produced energy as we transition, as we ultimately will be uh, declining with our, our oil and gas usage. You should use the, the most sustainable products that are being uh, produced, and that is right here in Canada and more specifically right here in Saskatchewan. 
and we should do it would do us well to make uh, this energy available not only to other Canadians but to uh, everyone across North America as well as those around the world that would keep our prices as affordable as possible and it would actually it would actually uh, lower our greenhouse gas emissions uh, from from oil production in the world by utilizing what we have right here at home and it's unfortunate that the the prime minister and the federal government uh, just uh, cannot seem uh, to understand that that is the case I spoke yesterday uh, with a guest who joined us from the UK and talked about the gas crisis, the energy crisis in the UK and Germany, and the challenges that are being faced by the European Union, and uh, they need more natural gas, and they look to Russia now. And Mr. Putin's response is, yeah, we'll provide you more natural gas, but we want you to support our building of a, of a pipeline, which is almost complete, under the Baltic, uh, Baltic Sea. Do you have a sense, Premier, that if we continue on the road that we're going, and it appears that we will, according to this federal government, that in Canada we're going to be facing an energy crisis of our very own and very soon? Yes, uh, absolutely uh, we are. If we continue to, to cap and, and to restrict uh, the production of, of some of, yes, the most sustainable energy in the world, but energy that we actually use, we will be vulnerable. We will be giving up our energy security, and we will be vulnerable to purchasing that energy from places like Saudi, uh, uh, Venezuela, and yes, Russia, and we will be vulnerable to the stipulations and the asks that they will have around uh, gaining access to that energy simply because we, for some reason or another, don't feel that we should be producing it at home, even though we're producing it better, uh, more sustainable, much more efficiently, and putting Canadians uh, to work. Uh, so this is uh, you know, an ideological policy with, that just really uh, makes no sense and actually puts our energy security in this nation at great risk. When you make that case to the federal government, whether it's the... Uh the Prime Minister or his rotating energy ministers, what do you hear back? Not very much. Um, not very much at all. We, it was no consultation uh, with respect to uh, the announcement that the Prime Minister made at Glasgow with uh, the province of Saskatchewan. I'll speak for I, I think Premier Kenny has indicated there was no consultation with the province of Alberta. That's two of the large uh, energy-producing provinces in this nation that didn't hear from the federal government on on uh, on this particular announcement maybe that's in you know due to the fact in the lead up to that announcement uh, they were out uh, campaigning uh, in the uh, in the in the recent election that we had so we we don't hear a lot uh, from the federal government and, and you know quite frankly as we move forward i i think you're going to see uh, provinces like saskatchewan and we had our convention yesterday and it have passed a motion uh, specific to this to really starting to expand our our provincial economy, um, starting to uh, look at our relationship in, with the federal government much more like Quebec, uh, for instance, has been looking at their relationship with the federal government as, as really, uh, rather than provinces within the nation of Canada, we're really starting uh, to feel that the, the differences in Saskatch- between Saskatchewan and, and where our federal government is heading is that we are actually, at this point in time, are, are more like a nation uh, within Canada. And I think Quebec is asked to be recognized like that, and I think you're going to see provinces like Saskatchewan start to start to ask those questions as well. So this is beyond an energy issue. This is a national unity issue. This is, you know, very, very challenging um, when you have a, a federal government that doesn't recognize the sustainability of an industry that is putting so many people to work. And I will speak uh, to Saskatchewans from Saskatchewan's perspective uh, and is and is producing a product more sustainable than anyone else in the world. In Saskatchewan, we were using enhanced oil recovery with uh, uh, putting carbon down our, our wellheads uh, right back where it came from. We're actually 
sequestering over half of the carbon in Canada right here in our energy industry in Saskatchewan and looking to sequester more. Um, there was a memorandum of understanding signed between a, an energy company that is utilizing enhanced oil recovery and our largest refinery in the province just a few weeks ago. And so the, the companies are there on the sustainability front. They're there on the production front. And the federal government is not uh, being partner with Canadians or, or this particular industry. And it is impacting our provincial relationship with the, with the federal government. And it looks like it's going to impact it uh, even more in the weeks and months ahead. I have never heard you so fed up with the federal government. I, you and I have talked many times, and I've never heard, I mean, I've heard you angry or, you know, dis- disturbed by their policies. I've never heard you this disturbed, and I just want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, like two, three minutes ago. You're thinking that Western provinces, and let's talk about yours, Saskatchewan, may be interested in pursuing a similar relationship with the federal government that Quebec is pursuing and become a nation within a nation. Yes? Absolutely. Uh, Saskatchewan is going to uh, make every attempt and every effort to start to flex our our autonomy, to flex our our provincial uh, muscles, if you will, within the nation of Canada. We still are um, obviously proud Canadians. Um, but with the decisions that this this federal government is making, namely around the energy industry, but many other industries, uh, it's been increasingly uh, challenged. Uh, it's an increasingly challenging time for us to, um, you know, unconsulted decisions for us uh, in this province to to really, uh, you know, move along in consort or in partnership uh, with the federal government. And so uh, we're going to be looking for, for every opportunity for us to carve out uh, our provincial autonomy, whether it be in the energy industry, whether it be in the immigration file, uh, whether it be in the, the collection of taxes. We've made some some uh, moves here just this past week to increase our, our provincial police presence to support our RS, RCMP and municipal officers that are there. And I think you're going to see, uh, you know, many more steps just like that in the weeks and months and even the years ahead, as long as this federal government continues to uh, work against uh, the province's best interests, and I would say in, in many cases against Canadians' best interests, and most particularly uh, when it comes to this most recent announcement at Glasgow. Um, and you're going to see uh, Saskatchewan most certainly defend its, uh, defend its interests. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.